Aalto University Podcast. Little uh, quotation from Time magazine, in which there was uh, uh, an interview with Lady Gaga, who of course in her profession is, uh, is one of the uh, most creative, uh, most courageous uh, artists and, and and somebody whom I admire tremendously but in, in this particular case she brings out the point that she's uh, working a lot now uh, also with uh, experts uh, because she'd like to make uh, loving kindness to be more normal and even cool. Uh, to, to me, this is uh, an exciting perspective. Firstly, because of the fact that if somebody is uh, in a given uh, industry, let, let's say a pop artist, uh, certain aspects of this somebody are needed as a human being to support the acts and the delivery. Similarly, if somebody is in uh, science, uh, somebody's uh, professional life takes place, let's say in universities, like in my case, to its large, to the large extent is the case, uh, some things are just uh, a prerequisite. So, uh, at the university, a prerequisite is uh, the use of your analytical capabilities. And, and it could be that in some other profession, the human uh, capability to uh, comprehend things numerically uh, could be a prerequisite. But being uh, kind and loving as a rule, isn't really a prerequisite in almost anything I can think about. It's, it's, of course, you need to be, to some extent, civil. But it turns out, if you look at uh, the current president of uh, the United States, that you can push the limits quite far, even when it comes to basic civility. So, so... Uh, if, for some reason, we would be uh, operating from the kind of uh, direction where Lady Gaga here seems to be operating, quite clearly something conscious is needed as a decision. So, so uh, you, you need to do something that uh, isn't necessary in terms of just the delivery. Now, Observing this, uh, you can push the case a bit further and say that, well, quite a few human uh, virtues, if you think about loving kindness as a virtue, something that would be good for humans. But if you think about other virtues, uh, such as uh, not wanting to harm anybody, or 
uh, respecting life, or it could be uh, wanting to stay uh, sober. It's also possible that you observe the fact that when people are intoxicated, that is when people are under the influence of particular kind of, let's say, liquids, uh, it's, it's uh, highly tempting to do things that the person might regret afterwards, or at least that, that, that generate actions that from the point of view of other people can, can be harmful. So it could be that somebody comes to the conclusion, uh, why should I drink uh, alcohol? I mean, uh, and, and one uh, hindrance there is that uh, drinking just water isn't often considered to be cool or even normal. Uh, which means that if somebody just drinks water, the person needs to challenge something that could be dominant in a given context. But challenging even small things can be surprisingly challenging. So it could be that the person is overwhelmed by the norm. Although when you think about the norm, you could say that this is not that great a norm. I mean, when you think about uh, any society from the point of view of uh, there being uh, people that are kind to one another, generous to one another, interested in one another, supportive one another, you know, how, how could that kind of a community be less than one where people uh, easily start to hate one another? But still it could be that to some extent, hatred, even hatred, drives dynamism. So it could be that it benefits some particular interest. So uh, with all this in mind, think about the following. Um, in 1997, I was asked to give uh, a speech for the annual meeting of the Finnish war wounded. This was quite an honor, and I prepared the speech quite well, word by word. And I love the Finnish language, uh, so, so, so I, I really put some effort into it. And even today, I'm, I'm quite proud of the piece in, in terms of the text. Uh, also, uh, I managed to work into the text uh, words of uh, respect for my uh, father's older brother who fell in uh, the winter war. So uh, uh, my father, who would be there in the audience, didn't know about this. So, so uh, I thought this, this is really great to be able to honor uh, uh, Uncle Aino, although I never obviously met, met him. Um, so there was a lot of interspeech that uh, I was very happy about and proud about. And the only thing that I needed to do was just to read it through. But the emotional uh, charge of the situation was overwhelming. I mean, I, I, I felt so uh, miniature. 
in, in front of those maybe 600 people. So uh, I didn't get even the first page through before starting to, to cry. And, and uh, as a result, the delivery of the speech wasn't really technically speaking that great. Uh, but I have somehow stumbled through. Then, um, sometime later, I, uh, I received a letter, a handwritten letter, from a certain Mrs. Ascola, who had been in the audience, who thanked, uh, in the form of this letter, quite powerfully, with very, very strong words, uh, for the speech. And I would say, uh, more than 20 years later, that uh, this is, uh, I think, one of the most powerful documents of my life, this particular letter. I just uh, read it recently. It's, it's, uh, it's an incredible letter. Which led to me coming to notice Mrs. Ascola, who lived in a special retirement home for the Finnish war wounded. Uh, but she was razor sharp, and I became to know her. Uh, and uh, then they called me from this retirement home, saying, yes, are you aware that Sylvie is going to turn 90? And we are going to have a little uh, party in her honor uh, in our uh, cafeteria. It would be really great if you could come. So the day was possible, so I went. There she was, standing, leaning to a chair, but she, she was so tiny. But, but she looked, I thought she looked uh, beautiful and radiant. Uh, I remember she had uh, kind of a crown prepared uh, from flowers, blue and white, for the Finnish flag. Maybe prepared by uh, her great-grandchildren. Anyway, then it was my turn. Uh, I present, presented some uh, pretty impressive roses, you know, tall, beautiful roses. And given the fact that she was so tiny, so short, the roses may, may be half her height. So, so, so I presented the roses there, uh, uh, adopting some kind of man of the world style. But to my surprise, she wasn't really focused upon what she was receiving from me. Her focus, her focus seemed to be somewhere else. And it uh, occurred to me that maybe somebody particularly important is coming after me. Uh, but that wasn't the reason. Quite clearly, she had seen me there queuing up. And uh, of course, it's possible for a human being to sort of become present to the possibilities that are presented by some living moment. So, so quite clearly, uh, she had seized the moment and made uh, some decisions in her mind. What is it that she's going to do? And what it was, I presented the roses. She took the roses, put them aside. But instead of focusing upon the roses, she uh, focused upon me. So she took my hands, looked into my eyes, and said, oh, what happiness that you came. 
because there's something I wanted to tell you. This something is, uh, I pray for you. Because you speak uh, for children, you speak for families, and you speak for human warmth in a way that makes people listen. Said Mrs. Ascola on the occasion of her 90th birthday in the special retirement home for the Finnish war wounded. This was powerful. I mean, to repeat, uh, if somebody's in, um, let's say, uh, research, so somebody wants to understand things, generate new understanding in the university context, you know, uh, human warmth isn't really something that would be a prerequisite for the person's possible achievements. So therefore, you could say, uh, yeah, uh, you, you might not be that, that encouraged to cultivate even the thought of human warmth. But still, of course, it could be that somebody still wants to cultivate the thought of human thought. But that requires for the person to sort of come up with that thought. And not only to come up with it, but also to scrutinize in his or her mind to deliberate the question, is this important to me? I mentioned uh, my father and the fact that uh, he didn't have the chance to have a any academic education, but also the fact that he uh, respected anybody in, uh, in, irrespective of the person's position or status. But if I think about uh, my mother, who, unlike my father, uh, ne never really wanted to be the center of attention. My father was really great socially. Uh, the, the, I, I mean, I mean, he was so uh, he was such a great storyteller. He, he was a mesmerizing personality. So, so uh, he was uh, quite good looking, and and uh, a former sportsman. He uh, he enjoyed being the focus of attention. My mother didn't enjoy that. Also, my mother, who worked. Uh, as a kind of uh, secretary, uh, fairly simple office work at the wool factory in, in, in Huvinka. Uh, I'm pretty confident that she uh, uh, was quite responsible uh, professionally and, and that she uh, did everything she did uh, quite well. But still, I would say that her heart wasn't really there. But if I ask, well, where was my mother's heart? I would say, well, her mother's, my mother's heart was at home. Where she, uh, she would have uh, her, her husband, my father, uh, her own parents, they lived in the same house, my grandparents from her side, and then uh, her two sons of whom of whom I have the honor of being the older. That's where her focus was. And uh, in the context of that uh, focus, if I ask, well, conceptually speaking, picking up from words in the kind of spirit that we 
discussed in the morning this sort of lighthouse thinking, words as lighthouses. Is, is, is there some particular words that one could mention? Yeah, I, I would say uh, humor warmth. Uh, I met uh, one good friend of mine from uh, high school years. Some time ago, and, and this friend of mine, Antti, said, uh, Esa, do you realize that uh, what you are doing in your life's work through these seminars, through these lectures, basically just taking the atmosphere from your childhood home to other arenas. So from this angle, uh, I'm continuing the work of my mother, but I hadn't really thought about it. And, and, and this is because uh, the theme one there touches upon is, is sort of like uh, a theme that is too generic. It's, it's too distant from uh, execution. It's, uh, it's, it's not that closely related to uh, a task accomplishment. So it seems that it's almost completely, uh, uh, you could say, uh, independent of, of any task lists. But task lists, of course, are ones that are quite highlighted in our culture. So you can't really make it if you don't bear the responsibility for, for task lists. And I'm, uh, I'm the last one to criticize that. I'm just sort of acknowledging that maybe that's a biased perspective. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe there is more to us than just execution of task lists. In fact, I'm tempted to suggest that maybe the execution of task lists would be easier if we would be more conscious of the human dimension and of such themes that Lady Gaga here brings out or uh, uh, the, the uh, example I just related uh, through Mrs. Ascola, perhaps highlights. I mean, think about it this way. What we know about your thinking is that uh, there is a system within you, and uh, this, this is one way to describe it, that uh, cognitive scientists uh, can use. Uh, system one. So system one basically... Is, is that part of your thinking that generates thoughts pretty much on its own. It's sort of automatic. So, so you come to a space and five seconds later you have already thought a lot of thoughts. Because something in that context has activated those thoughts. And, and uh, it's, 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 it's something where you don't really have to explicitly, consciously consult your experiences. So you don't have to, as it were, try to remember what kind of situations have been like this situation. Just to be able to orient yourself similarly in this new situation. Because, of course, any situation on some level is new. So, so you basically just sort of lump things together and, and automatically think that, okay, this is like that, so so-and-so is the case. So this kind of uh, system is uh, uh, holistic, but clearly it brings a lot quickly on the basis of something. So, so it's, it's sort of like, uh, you could say, associative. And, and uh, 
it's a, it's a very handy system because in many situations you don't have time to look into the details and the various specifics of that very situation. So, so if you come into this uh, space, uh, you very quickly estimate that the situation in this uh, space is pretty much like it has previously in this space or similar spaces. So you, you, you generate a lot of thoughts on the system one level and this is good because then you don't have to waste your resources uh, by, by reflecting, could there be something specific here that you should perhaps be uh, uh, more conscious about. Uh, and, and so having system one is, is great. And, and uh, you could say, evolutionarily speaking, that uh, the human species wouldn't be here had our thinking not worked pretty well automatically. So, so you could say, probably it also means that on the system one level, there are some learning mechanisms that are extremely quick. So it so, uh, could be also that, uh, that many of those learning mechanisms and, and operating mechanisms, they probably relate to that side in us that is so uh, efficient in terms of the way it connects us with the immediate situation. Uh, that you don't have to even look more closely in order to have that connection already, namely through your emotions. Affects and feelings and emotions are a tremendous force of connectivity to the immediate situation, which is very, very handy. For instance, because uh, if you fear something, then your mind becomes more focused upon the something that you fear. But certain things are worth fearing. So therefore, the likelihood of you overcoming the something before the something overcomes you becomes more probable, which is good. So, uh, so emotions are likely to be significant here. Uh, also, the kind of uh, learning mechanisms where, where you seem to be able to grasp something completely on the basis of very, very little information uh, is also uh, forthcoming. So all this is good, assuming that the situation in which you are and you automatically think a lot is accurate and things haven't changed. So to the extent that the situation in fact is like some other situation where you learn to act in a particular way and think in a particular way, this is excellent. But if things are not the same, then of course things are not that well. But luckily you have another system at your disposal. This is your system too, which uh, often is considered to be the distinctively human mechanism because it involves also distancing possibilities regarding what's immediately given. And the distance, distancing capabilities are tremendous because then you can, in, just in your mind, sort of simulate alternatives. And as you simulate alternatives, it could be that you come up with something that you wouldn't have come up with if you had just looked at what the situation in fact seems to be right now. And, and therefore, 
the possibility of crafting out of the something that the situation is right now, something completely new, would be uh, taken away. So system two is really great. It's sort of permitting hypothetical thinking. I mean, think about it this way. Let's assume that uh, you're going to have a, an important meeting. Let's assume that it's, it's a job interview. And, and uh, uh, let's say five, six people are likely to uh, be involved. So five, six people are going to interview you in a given, in a given room. And, and from your point of view, it would be important to get this job. So understandably, uh, your, your system one is now very active, meaning that, uh, uh, that there are all kinds of things that can go wrong. So therefore, you read the situation very quickly from the point of view of what could go wrong. But it's also possible on the system two level, your more reflective level, to do decisions. I mean, let's assume that uh, you would, just before entering the room, decide that you find something you like in each of the persons. Now, if you make such a decision Five seconds before you enter the room, the likelihood of you finding something you like in each of the persons is increased. Uh, it could be like, that's the kind of uh, shade of green that I like. Or it could be, that person seems to be drinking tea. I like tea. So, so uh, somebody's taking notes uh, physically Hey, that's great. I, I like people who take notes physically in this digital era. So if you allow yourself to associate positively, the likelihood of you associating positively is increased. Now, this means that as you are, in fact, in, inside the room now, these thoughts that you have are likely to be somewhat different as compared to they would have been had you not made the decision or finding something you like in each person just seconds before you came in there. But this means from the point of view of the people that are in the room, that you are likely to be experienced by them just slightly differently as compared to what their experience would have been had you had not those thoughts. Now, of course, you can say, well, that's such a nuanced difference. They, they won't even notice it. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, of course you can argue that it doesn't necessarily lead to something. But who knows? I mean, maybe their experience is just miniaturely different towards the positive. So that something starts to happen that wouldn't have happened had there not been this, this, this particular atmosphere in the room to start with. So uh, this is the use of system two but you are using it to benefit your system one. Because your system one will associate anyway. I mean, let me say it this way. Sometimes I'm criticized and I have been criticized for what some people think is my positive thinking. From my point of view, this is not a, an accurate description of what I try to do. Because from my point of view, I'm not claiming that Something that is negative is positive. 
I'm just saying that, you know, our thoughts anyway interpret, our thoughts anyway uh, color life as it comes across to our experience. So why not influence that coloring? At least to the, to the extent of, of having uh, points of reference, let's say words, that help me with respect to what I believe I want to do. I like to succeed in this interview. I mean, let me say it this way. If one takes the profession of lecturing as seriously as I do, uh, what you want to do is that you want to prepare uh, quite well for any lecture. This is point number one. But, but you can do that to some extent in advance before uh, the, the, uh, the hour comes. And you can do that to a large extent using your system too. So you sort of uh, uh, evaluate things cognitively. You articulate matters. You perhaps uh, prepare slides. You operate with uh, various systems of representation. You, you uh, uh, engage in hypothetical thinking. Should I use that? If I use that, maybe is, is this a good continuation? There are all kinds of things you can engage in. But of course, ultimately, in the situation itself, you are going to uh, also be a system one level thinker. So you are going to uh, react to something uh, instantly. Now, uh, the same is true of everybody that comes to the lecture. Now, one of the features that one encounters when uh, addressing a group of people is that instinctively, most people, literally, most people fear the gaze of other people. It's, it's, it's very unusual. I mean, some extremely uh, uh, externally oriented people uh, do not fear the gaze of others. But I would say it's, it's, it's pretty natural. I think it's healthy to fear a situation where, let's say, 100 people are staring at you. So, so, so therefore, on the system one level, all kinds of thoughts might come to your mind. For instance, the fact that somebody seems uh, 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 kind of hostile, uh, that must be bad news, one system one level could say. But of course, um, you could have directed your system one already in advance because it could be that you're so confident that uh, there's nobody that is hostile towards you. How do you know it? Because you were at the door. You met everybody that came. Nobody that came was hostile. Similarly, uh, my special lady often emphasizes to me that, Esa, do you realize that, that uh, your, your facial expression is, is, is quite often sort of quite, quite, quite sort of... Uh, um, uh, uh, dominant and and uh, it's it's sort of like negative. I, I mean, I mean, you you you're not smiling that much. The special lady would say, and and uh, it's that, that's often the case because in, when lecturing, I, I'm I'm so much focusing upon the thought, 
that that I realize I, I fairly seldom smile, for instance. But as a rule, as I would say, people don't feel that I'm hostile towards them. And, and why would that be the case? Well, one reason could be that we, we met at the door. I mean, you, you got a sense of the guy in the front. I mean, he might have a little bit sort of funny jacket, but then again, he's married to, you know, to the queen. And, and, and sort of, uh, there's a lot of things that can happen at the door on the system one level. But to the extent that uh, such a culture isn't in place in the universities, and it isn't, the only way that can lead you to the door is your own thinking. That's the system two level. I mean, if you want to cultivate human warmth in whatever you will be doing, that won't happen automatically. Uh, some contexts are easier than others. So to some extent, you might be able to sort of safeguard your natural warmth. But many contexts are so competitive. There, there could be all kinds of reasons why people are sort of uh, holding back uh, some of their uh, openings, some of their generosity. You know, there could be all kinds of things that you lose if, if you sort of trust too much other people. It's the case in many contexts. But of course, it could be that uh, this is something that you uh, early on decided regarding life itself. You want to live a life in a particular kind of way. And what's the way? I want to cultivate human warmth. I, I, I want to cultivate in the context in which my life takes loving kindness. I realize often loving kindness isn't perceived to be charismatic, exciting, sexy. I still cultivate it. I mean, let me say it this way. Um, I, I became uh, kind of a celebrity basically uh, in 1980. I was 27 years of age. And in those days, uh, in a country like Finland, it didn't really require that much to become sort of a household name. So, uh, all of a sudden, I was fairly famous. And, and I was sort of like the uh, uh, spokesman of a generation almost. At least one of the spokesmen of a generation. So, uh, I found this to be exciting. Also, because people found me considerably more interesting than they had been up until then. This included ladies. And, you know, uh, many of us guys enjoy it if ladies are interested in you. So, so, so I was quite excited. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and then uh, I published some books, became more famous. I started to think that, you know, uh, if you're a top caliber guy, uh, you have uh, affairs because of the fact that uh, you're a mesmerizing personality. It's sort of understandable. This is what everybody, you know, who is cool is doing anyway, around the world. Uh, but then I fell in love with, uh, with pizza. And my thinking changed. I started to think that, uh, well, our culture 
doesn't uh, respect that much uh, loyalty, um, who doesn't uh, respect that much uh, faithfulness. But I'm a one woman's man. I'm committed to Pipsa. She's the woman of my life. So this happened uh, more than 30 years ago. I, I, I basically just thought that, you know, it's cool to be faithful. And, and uh, it, I, I mean, I didn't make the decision because it's cool. I just sort of started to think that it's also cool. I, I, it's, it's not the norm. But it's something that I, I just uh, commit myself. So this is what I uh, decided. This is what I've done. But uh, this is uh, system two level thinking, which has implications to what happens automatically. Because if you are famous, even in some local context only, uh, if it's the case that your status is high, uh, by some criteria in some contexts. That means that uh, you are going to come to know people that find you exciting, perhaps attractive, even before you come. And, and from their point of view, there could be all kinds of thoughts why they would want to have an affair with you, for instance. But I'm a man uh, who does find some women, we could say... Uh, irrationally uh, attractive. I say irrationally because sometimes I can sort of just feel it. And, and even when I argue against it, I still feel it. So, so uh, it's some kind of biological forces, perhaps you could say, within me taking hold. And of course, this could have implications if I'm traveling. It could be also at a time when things haven't been going that well between Pipsa and me for quite some time. Which, of course, you could say is likely to be the case if you get children. Because when you do get children, time pressures and all kinds of pressures hit your relationship with force. And the phenomenon we touched upon through the... Uh, Ambulance episode first, and then return to uh, with Mandela. You have a very difficult job. Theme development, which is a surface defect. That theme uh, is it's difficult to sort of uh, uh, analyze clearly if you are in the midst of pressure. So therefore, it could be that I'm out there in some little uh, city. I'm the, out there in some bigger city. I'm checking into a hotel and somebody approaches me. And this is in a situation when things haven't been going that well between me and the special lady for months. I mean, let's face it, she's neglecting me. She doesn't appreciate how much I put effort also to, to the family. I mean, she's become so negative, let's just face it. So it could be that it would lead to something. Given the evolutionary forces within me, that are irrationally strong in many cases. So it could lead to something in that little town, in that bigger city, but in fact it don't. And why, it, why, why is that the case? Be that's because I've already 
done some serious thought work. That means that the situation can't take a hold of me and, and push me to a corner uh, because I have thought about the larger picture. So, I mean, your children are small only a short certain time. I, I mean, life consists of various uh, phases. Certain things do feel tough for a moment. So, so, so uh, it's, it's uh, I think, such a strong argument for engaging in system two level thinking and signaling out time for it. That anyway, your system one is going to take you to situations associatively and potentially the direction where you probably don't want to go to. And with all this, now, well, maybe I say it this way. The key challenge is, maybe this is uh, worth looking into. Uh, the key challenges that we face using now this terminology is that your automatic system one creates tremendous illusion of truth. Now, uh, it's, it's so strong, the illusion of truth, that you don't feel the need for any further scrutiny. Although, in principle, of course, as a human being, you should know that the human being throughout human history has made spectacular mistakes. So evaluating things spectacularly wrong. So therefore, any thought you might have potentially should be subject to scrutiny and you should perhaps talk about it with, with one of your trusted friends, you know, do you think this is the case? But uh, system one creates illusion of truth. At the same time, it's biased. That's its whole point to be biased. It means that uh, it assumes things on the basis of very small evidence are of a particular kind. And, and, uh, and, and, and this is a strength to the extent that the situation where you are is of that kind of nature that everything that is categorized as such is such. So, so, so if somebody says, uh, some of the people that come from Mexico are rapists, it probably is true. It's just that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are not and and uh, but at the, same, at the same time, if you see, if you say that you know you can say that you know that there are very very bad people coming there now, in this train of people that are walking towards the United States of America, some very bad people. So you activate people's system one level thinking and the truths that associate with uh, somebody being a rapist, let's say. Uh, system one prefers simple cause and effect explanations. Uh, a simple cause and effect explanation is good in some cases because then you can sort of uh, uh, save time, save resources. And of course, uh, many phenomena do follow cause and effect explanations. So uh, whatever happened uh, in, uh, in the university hospital to which I was taken, uh, was subject to various laws uh, that relate to what people have inside in the stomach area. Meaning that uh, 
when, when, when you push in some particular serum there to some particular place, then something happens. It's, it's great to have such cause and effect uh, rules known before the somebody shows up. So, so it's, it's great to have a simple cause and effect explanations, but of course when it comes to human beings, simple cause and, uh, 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 cause and effect explanations typically don't really hold water. Because when it comes to humans, you know, sometimes something is the case, some other times something is not the case. You know, somebody maybe is a rapist, but somebody can change. I mean, people do change. So, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the challenge of system one being so, so lazy. Where these problems with uh, system one hit the surface. I mean, would it, if it would be the case that you would at the same time scrutinize whatever come to your mind automatically and sort of check if that's actually the case, that would be good, but your system too typically don't want to engage. It's uh, also because of the fact that uh, most of the time your system too, from your point of view, seems to be so heavily engaged in the more important activities that typically relate to your profession or whatever, uh, uh, wherever your activities take place task-wise. So, so uh, uh, your, your feeling is, on the one hand, you can't really change your personality, that is your system one. At the same time, you can't really do that much with your system two either because your system two is working full-time already now. Now, if I say, can you really claim that uh, in one year's time, there couldn't be more human warmth in your life as generated by what's in, inside of you than now is the case. That can you really claim that can already now be known is uh, a fact? I mean, anybody can have more human warmth, more generosity, more friendliness, more, more curiosity, more respect. I mean, this is a human possibility. But in order for all that to happen, you need to activate yourself in that dimension. But much of the time it doesn't happen for these two reasons. Reason number one, because you take your automatic responses to be uh, 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 like, uh, like, like uh, graven in a stone. It's your personality, you're a little bit uh, too easily irritable, for instance. I, I mean, or it could be that uh, being supportive to other people isn't that sort of uh, your style. Or, or uh, uh, as a personality, you're not so generous. I mean, some people are, you're, you're just not. It's so difficult for you to apologize. Could be uh, your way of uh, just uh, facing the facts. But what I believe is the case is the case that if we engage in serious thinking about ourselves and about the nature of life, it's quite possible that something surprising happens without you really even trying that much. And with all that in mind, let me um, now show you uh, what I hope is um, uh, useful, a little bit longer video cut. This is from the film Kill Bill. 
and and uh, of course uh, quite a cult movie you could say often perceived to be about uh, revenge because story wise what happens is that uh, the uh, the, the leading lady, played by uh, Uma Thurman, uh, almost gets killed in the beginning at a church, along with the people that are in the church. And this is because uh, the hitmen and women of Bill, the bride's uh, former lover, uh, are there to commit this uh, massacre. And this is because uh, Bill is so uh, 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 angered and agitated by the fact that she had uh, run away from him. And not only did she run away from him, she also uh, became pregnant and is about to get married. So, uh, so they commit a massacre there in the church, but she doesn't die. Instead, she then gradually returns to the scene, and, and, and she goes through everybody that was there committing the massacre. And, and given the fact that it's Tarantino who directs the film, you can say it's uh, using uh, violence in a particular humorous, even if somewhat absurd way, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting film. Uh, but I don't think it's about revenge. I, I, I think it's about uh, something much bigger. I think it's, uh, it's something where the concluding scene to which we will go here depicts something uh, quite important. This is the scene where uh, she has finally found uh, Bill. And, and, uh, and they discuss regarding what has happened, which for former lovers is sort of natural. You want to understand what has happened. And uh, of course, in any situation where two people have experienced something uh, big together, uh, one possibility is to try to reach out to the other one, understand his position, understand her position. So you want to reach out to the other person. But of course, there's the other alternative is that you just sort of uh, hold on to your own energy. You just sort of hold on to your own fixed perspective. So, so uh, let's, let's take a look at this. Uh, it's a little bit longer than the previous uh, uh, examples we've had, but, uh, but I also hope this uh, uh, helps us to get through this uh, valley of death after lunch so 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 let's go into this now now, now if you think about what we uh, saw there from the point of view of a possible way of thinking that that you could uh, describe as bill's philosophy you know, it's, it's it's possible to think that what's right for me is right so so uh that basically that means that even in questions that matter most uh, you don't really have to engage in the other one's perspective. You can sort of depict just how things are 
on the basis of your own perspective. Uh, and what you are is what you are. Uh, Carol Tweck has a great book which I highly recommend. Uh, this is something I typically don't do that much in the context of, context of my, my, my lectures or seminars. Uh, because nowadays it's so easy to find great resources intellectually. But Carol's, Carol Tweck has a great book, Mindset, in which she makes uh, a distinction between uh, growth mindset or incremental mindset, and what she calls fixed mindset. The key feature of the fixed mindset is that you assume things that relate to some of the key categories of, of life are fixed. So it could be, for instance, that your personality from your point of view is fixed. So also it could mean that uh, the... Uh, the easiness or difficulty with which you can apologize is fixed. Or, or your level of generosity is fixed. Your friendliness is fixed. I mean, things are fixed. When it comes to that kind of psychological, interpersonal, uh, related to uh, other people, human dimension, this possible view. Uh, the alternative view is to assume that Assume that things can grow. Now, if we assume that things can grow, even regarding some such aspects of us that are very, very deep within, and ask, well, what might be uh, the best shot at making the growth to come about? Uh, one answer that suggests itself, well, why about thinking? I mean, why not sort of think about at least the possibilities? And, and, uh, and, and then perhaps uh, trying to create contexts in which you can engage in the thinking that might trigger growth. But this is not what uh, Bill is up to, because he considers himself to be fixed as he is. Uh, I'm a murdering bastard. Uh, you should have known how I'm going to react. Uh, meaning that what he does, to the extent that it is bad, to the extent that it's by his own admission uh, uh, overreacting, uh, it's actually her fault because she should have known what she was doing. She should have known that I'm going to react exactly as I did react. No need to try to understand the other in her terms. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing in this whole episode that would signal his even desire to understand why did he do what, he, what she did. Uh, and and uh, uh, also, it's, it's, I think, quite... Uh, uh, quite impressive that if you think about the ending there, uh, his ending is, how do I look? So this kind of external perspective. Her perspective in the bathroom after uh, crying those tears of happiness uh, and gratefulness 
she comes up with uh, the last line, thank you. Gratefulness as the last last line. Also, uh, you noticed uh, uh, just before uh, he knows he's maybe one minute away from death, given the, the, the fine palm uh, heart, palm uh, exploding technique hit that, that, uh, that she had employed on him. So he knows I'm going to die in one minute. And, and then uh, she reaches out physically to touch him. He doesn't react in any way. He, he just wants to be within himself in that castle of assumed uh, gloriousness. Uh, when I think about this episode and think about the question, will Donald Trump ever apologize anything? The answer is no. So, so uh, think about it this way. Here is uh, a list of, uh, sorry, probably you can't see it that well, but it's not that important. Uh, the, the basic idea here is enough. This, this is a, a, a psychopathology checklist. What are some of those uh, 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 features that, that, uh, uh, that most prominently correlate with, with people that for independent reasons uh, you, you can categorize as a psychopath? So you have things like uh, superficial charm up there, Grandiose sense of self-worth, uh, need of, for stimulation, uh, shallow affect, uh, lack of remorse, and so forth. And, and uh, you could say, well, th this is what we just saw in, in Bill. But to some extent, one can also uh, perhaps uh, mirror that back to one's own case. Remember that anything we find anywhere in, in humanity, to some extent, exists in us. To some extent. At the same time, as there is the danger of sliding towards the negative, there's also the possibility of climbing up towards the positive. But that won't happen automatically. And therefore, I think it's so vital that we create context in which we can engage in our effective capabilities of, of, uh, uh, of, of also moving ourselves maybe in our automatic system one dimensions when the situation emerges. And, and, uh, uh, and this brings us to the claim I made regarding Kill Bill as something quite a bit more than just uh, uh, a pretty violent, uh, if ingeniously done, uh, revenge uh, story. I, I think it's, uh, it's about going beyond your ego. It's, it's growing uh, to become somebody who reaches out to something more than herself. And in, in this case, of course, uh, to something more than uh, herself is, uh, is the child. So, so you can again there uh, uh, miniaturize the, the, uh, the significance of the story by saying that, well, uh, I don't have a child, I won't have a child, but it's going beyond oneself that is the more generic, I think, important point there. Okay, let me stop there. Thank you very much. We survived the valley of death after lunch beautifully. But now we have some uh, smoothie out there. Uh, so so uh, let's take some 20 minutes for this, but, but please uh, engage in some dialogue with uh, your fellow uh, seminar people uh, in, in the course of that, uh, that, that uh, 
that's Modi. But thank you very much again for your concentration.